Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we completed our sunrise hike up Masada, the palace, turned into a fortress slash hideout for less than a thousand Jews who were hiding out from the Romans. Let's quickly recap what we learned last time. When we got to Masada, we hiked up the siege ramp that the Romans had built to get them to the top of Masada to destroy the Jews. And of course, we learned that there were Jews hiding out there because the Romans had come to Israel and been conquering it. And in the process of that, that conquering by the Romans, many Jews were killed. The alternative to being murdered was what the remnant on top of Masada did. They chose to hold out for as long as possible, but eventually the Roman forces were too strong for them. So the story goes that the Roman governor in the land of Israel wanted to go make sure that all the Jews were destroyed. The Jews had a history of being able to cause a lot of problems, even if they were only a small number, like those on top of Masada, 960 people. With that in mind, the governor sent Roman troops and also Jewish prisoners of war to Masada to conquer the remnant. Note that the ratio here was 15,000 people to 960. 15,000 people all opposing that small remnant holding out on top of Masada. Eventually, the Roman forces get to Masada, but see that they can't get up from the back of the mountain, which was Snake Path, because the Jews had blocked it. The tale goes that they waited for a while, thinking the remnant couldn't stay for all that long. However, the wise remnant chose to go to Masada for that reason. It was strategic, as all of King Herod's leftovers were, well, left over. So they had housing, water, food, all the essentials. Well, finally, the Romans realized they need to take action, and they built a siege ramp that took a period of time that was up to two years. We're not totally sure, uh, simply based on the fact that we only have one account from Josephus. But in the year 73 AD, the Dr Jewish remnant, well, they were conquered, and conquered may not be the right term. Maybe you know what I'm hinting at from last time. We'll get there in a second. On April 16th, the Romans head up their siege ramp with their equipment to tear down the walls and of course, as we learned last time, it was right here on top of Masada, where we stand now, which is where the Jewish remnant committed mass suicide to escape falling into Roman hands, to escape being conquered. The night before the Romans broke in, the Jewish men had to go kill their wives and children, and then the men killed each other until the last man committed suicide. The choice of who would kill whom and then who would be the last man standing was done by lots. When Masada was excavated, the names of those remaining men were inscribed on stones on Masada. In the end, the only survivors were a few women and several children who hid in a cistern upon hearing the plan that they were to be killed. We talked about the meaning of human freedom, and, and let's briefly consider that again here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Freedom, it's something we desire and something we can easily take for granted until it looks like our time as free people might soon be over. This is human nature. And throughout history, many people have been faced with the question of what to do when their freedom is about to be taken away. For the leader of the Jewish remnant, Eleazar Ben-Yer, well, well, he chose that he and his fellow Jews would not be taken as slaves to the Romans. In that moment, when their freedom was about to be over, they chose to die as free men. 
While suicide is technically prohibited in the Jewish religion, they chose to exercise their freedom to break that commandment and die as servants of the true God alone. As Benyar put it, he wanted to die in a state of freedom, remember that quote from last week, where he was a slave to no one other than to God himself. A slave to no one other than to God. This discussion warrants that I mention something else about how people view Masada. You can imagine that this is a very controversial place. For one, I've already told you suicide is prohibited in the Jewish religion, uh, and mass suicide and murder also not allowed, obviously. Uh, but, but mass suicide and murder both happened here, so some Jews see this as a sacred place. The burial grounds for their fallen brothers who boldly stood up to the Romans and others, on the other hand, are, are disgusted at the thought of 960 Jews all killing each other. So there, there are two sides there. And additionally, some Jews believe that those in Masada were brave. They say that in choosing to die as slaves to God, not slaves to the Romans, they should be honored for their bravery. They treat Masada as a place of reverence, and maybe you've gotten a sense of that. I mean, even the Israeli park system plays into that a bit as they're strict with no eating or picnicking up on Masada. I mean, you wouldn't do that at a cemetery, right? And if you look over there to the right, in the middle of Masada, there's a tower where someone sits and watches to make sure that people are not climbing on walls or acting in disrupt disruptive or, or disrespectful ways, and if they are, then they yell at them over a loudspeaker. This morning has honestly been pretty peaceful. I haven't heard anyone yell to anyone yet. Okay, one visit when I was here up at Masada, I climbed the siege ramp with a bunch of high school age kids. Oh, I wasn't in their group, but they happened to be climbing a little ahead of us, and I don't think that loudspeaker with the person over the loudspeaker was silent for a minute, just because the kids were running all over and trying to climb around and such. So many Jews will climb up to Masada and reflect on what happened here. They will remember the significance of freedom, and they'll quietly contemplate the horrors of Masada. Others are totally different. They see Masada as an example of a group of Jews who refused to compromise. And they say that compromise is crucial for a society's success, and the remnant should not have committed suicide because that's prohibited by the law. So instead, they would say that they should have accepted slavery and recognized that their highest loyalty was to God. According to them, they would say that the remnant on Masada is an example of what not to do when faced with a decision. They would say that the remnant took the easy way out, I suppose you could say, uh, because they killed themselves so they wouldn't have to face life under Roman rule. What if God wanted that for them, though? What if God wanted them to be in a hard situation? They would say that the remnant never got to find out if that was God's plan because they wanted their human freedom so much so that they chose to kill themselves to keep it. So that argument is definitely harsh. I actually don't agree with it. I do think that you, as a virtual voyager, sh should consider both sides and, and find out what you believe. I believe that the Jewish remnant Amasada exercised their freedom to obey a higher calling. They chose to be enslaved to God. And albeit prohibited by Jewish law, they killed themselves, in my opinion, not out of a refusal to compromise, but out of a desire to show that they followed God alone. All the same, I do think it's important to keep those two sides in mind when we reflect on what happened here on top of Masada. Well, how about we go ahead and walk around a bit on this bright morning and explore Masada here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. First off, I want us to go see the three-tiered palace. Three-tiered palace, it's pretty cool. It's inside of a mountain, come on. 
so we know that King Herod built Masada and all the structures we see around here because this was his winter palace. But over here, yep, uh, be careful, watch your step, yep. So, so over here, the Herod had these three tiers built into the side of the mountain so he could be sitting as king while watching the sunrise or, or just enjoying the view out over the Dead Sea. Come over to the first one here. It's also the biggest one. It's kind of like a platform overlooking the Dead Sea and overlooking that area where the Romans eventually would have come and camped, right? All those 15,000 Romans. For a second, can you just imagine Herod sitting right there in front of us? And then come on, down the steps to the next one. It's a little smaller. Come on. The last here is closest to the ground, but really not by much. Look up, look straight up, yep. See the first layer of the cake, as I like to call it? It's what, 10, 15 feet above us? I, I think that's accurate. I'm never good with just guessing measurements, but 10, 15 feet, we'll go with it. But this last one, it's pretty small, and I just like to look out on both sides and take in the view. Well, sometimes, I just try and imagine how the Jews must have felt while they were stuck here. They, they really couldn't get off. If someone were to try and get down, they would have been killed since the Romans had surrounded Masada. They were stuck here for upwards of two years, we think. And while Masada is really fascinating, I mean, it is. It's fascinating for us to check out because it's our first time here for, for most of us. And even I being here several times, it's still wonderful to just see what this place is. But imagine how they must have felt with nowhere to go. Maybe running up and down the palace tiers was something the children would do for fun. I don't know that for a fact, but all the same, I like to imagine. Now that we've seen the palace tiers, let's hike on out of this portion of Masada. I actually want to walk all the way over to the other side to go to a natural echo chamber. It's awesome. Now that we've seen the palace tiers, let's hike on out of this portion of Masada. I actually want to walk all the way over to the other side to go to a natural echo chamber. It's awesome. But as we're walking, I want to talk to you about what the IDF soldiers do at their swearing-in ceremony after completing their training and officially becoming IDF soldiers. It has to do with the names of these last few episodes, too. I've named them Never Again, Remembering the Remnant at Masada. And the reason I've done that is because upon completing their training, IDF soldiers actually take a pledge, and they pledge that they will defend and protect Israel and make sure that it's safe. Ultimately, they're, they're kind of playing into this motif of never again. It goes back to the Holocaust, it goes back to Masada, never again. These IDF soldiers are swearing that they will give their lives to protect this nation, protect the nation of Israel, and protect the land that they love so much. I have a friend who currently serves in the IDF, and he told me the story of how he and some other IDF soldiers who had just completed training all woke up early, and they went and recited the pledge to be sworn in as soldiers. It's incredibly moving, and I hope that one day I'll be able to see that ceremony happen. The IDF soldiers are so loyal to Israel, and they want to protect it and defend it so that a situation like what happened at Masada never has to be a reality again. Never again will a remnant be stuck somewhere without backup or help while the enemy closes in on them, eventually ending in their destruction. So the pledge that IDF soldiers take really connects to what we're learning about here at Masada. Well, after that walk and talk, we've made it to the other side of Masada, here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. The next thing I want you to see is this really cool natural echo chamber. We're on this side here, and then look over there, you see that other side, and notice how deep the void is in the rock there. Well, based on the principles of physics, 
when we yell, we will hear a fantastic echo. And it's definitely the best echo I've ever heard. So let's try it. First of all, let's all yell hello. Hello! Wow, did you hear it? It's a, it's a little faint, but still, it's pretty good for an echo. Okay, let's try something else. Let's all yell Israel. Here we go. Wow, that one was even better. Nice, nice. Such fun memories. The natural echo chamber on top of Masada. Now that's a stop a lot of people don't know about. Follow me back over to the main area of Masada. See that tiny little house, or it kind of looks like a house? That's actually where a tourist scribe works on Masada. We won't want to disturb him, but at least we can go and look in the little window and see if he's working. Once it was really cool because my family's tour guide, also a tourist scribe, was friends with the Masada tourist scribe. And so when he saw him working on Masada, the scribe got up and, and came out and said hi to our group. And then he was so kind and invited us all into his little workstation and asked us all of our names. Now, my parents have named all of my siblings and myself after biblical characters, which means that all eight of us have authentic Hebrew names. As is the case, any person in Israel knows how to say our names almost perfectly, with maybe a slight variation based on some Hebrew-English uh, differentiations. And that's just because all of our names are really just transliterations of Hebrew. Uh, a transliteration is where you take the sound of the word in a different language and then try and fit the sounds that the, word, uh, that the word's made up of and fit them into letters in another alphabet. So the Hebrew letters for my name are different than English letters, but the sound of A, ah, uh, uh, Abigail, right, can be transliterated from Hebrew into English. So this Torah scribe actually wrote out all of the kids' names on parchment. And of course, he has perfect handwriting, so they all looked beautiful. We actually framed that piece of parchment with all our names in Hebrew. And now it sits on our wall at home as a reminder. Oh, look, he actually is in there. Let's go in and say hello. Well, don't disturb him because... He's working very hard, and if he were to make a mistake with this scroll, that would be really bad, as he and all other Torah scribes have to follow very strict rules when creating the scroll. But notice how detailed he's being. He is working on one letter at a time, dipping his pen into the ink each time, each new letter, taking care not to spill any ink. He's carefully bent over his desk, with two lights shining on the parchment in different directions, so there are no shadows. Oh, it's just fascinating to see. Next up, let's head on back to the middle part of Masada to see some more of Herod's creations. The first thing we can check out is the cistern. Don't lean over too far, but you can see how it would collect rainwater whenever it would rain. See here? And the rain was rare, but it actually would get all of it, right? Masada sloped in such a way and the cisterns are placed in such a way that it would allow for all the water to drain into some of the various cisterns that Herod has here. So there was never a water shortage, which is so cool considering that we're in the literal desert. Well, come enter this structure. Yeah, look down. See the mosaic? It's been so beautifully preserved. It's a square outline with some waves around the edges and then circles within circles on the inside. From up here, it looks like one cohesive design. And now look a little more closely. From up here, you can kind of make it out. See the little indents in the picture? Those are from the way the mosaic had to be put together. Each little stone was carefully cut into a perfect square, and then they were carefully arranged to create the art, individually arranged too. 
and this is just a small mosaic here. Some of the larger mosaics up on Masada would have been an entire floor, but because the mosaic uh, was also a walking path for the floor, they got ruined a lot faster, which is kind of sad. Now, mosaic floors were only for the rich, since it took so much work to design them and, and put them together. I mean, can you imagine? You would have to design the art, find the stones, get the right colors, put it all together in a painstaking manner. Ugh, that's painful. But it's also pretty cool, and we can enjoy it now. There's also a special heated floor in the next building over, and it's partially destroyed, but that actually allows us to get a view that helps us understand what's happening. So notice that there's some pillars sticking a few inches out of the floor, and then there's one preserved section where it just looks like the floor is off the ground. That's how all of this floor would have looked, that section on the right here. The purpose for it being raised off the floor is so heat could be pumped underneath the floor, thus allowing whoever was walking on the floor to have their feet warmed. Let's exit this building and just check out a few others. The next one over is a storehouse where wine and grain could be stored, and this next one here is a bathhouse. You can see this was a full-functioning mini-city, just on top of a mountain in the middle of a desert. Well, it's time for us to head down Masada. Unfortunately, our time is over all too quickly. So here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, go ahead, grab a good drink of water, and get a refill here at the station. Now, down Snake Path. So, it's kind of scary, but let's just try and keep moving, and I'm going to tell you... Uh, a little more about Masada on our way down. But please, seriously, watch your step. The beginning has handrails and parts, but as we go down, there's nothing except a drop off the mountain, which we really want to avoid. So maybe you'll pity my tears uh, from when I went down this path the first time a little bit more after we safely get to the bottom. So we've talked all about the horrible mass suicide that took place here on Masada, but I believe it's only right that I share a differing view. Some archaeologists have... Uh, concerning Masada. A good number of archaeologists have actually concluded that the remnant at Masada did not exist and the mass suicide at Masada did not happen. Basically, this controversy started after Yigal Yadin, uh, an archaeologist, he excavated Masada in the 1960s. He was a prominent archaeologist, a professor at Hebrew University, but he was going into this excavation with a little bit of bias. He wanted to show that the stories of Masada were true. And this bias and this desire made even more sense in the context of what was happening in Israel at the time. The state was coming into existence, and a story of bravery at Masada would have helped instill a sense of patriotism. Well then, in the late 90s and early 2000s, an Israeli sociologist, Nachman ben Yehuda, came forth in two books, which argued that Yadin had been trying to create a narrative about Masada, based on his excavations, which would help bring the nation of Israel together, kind of make it more cohesive. And another archaeologist later came along in 2009 and then tried to support Yadin's fightings, going against Nachman ben Yehuda. So you can see how this thing was really going back and forth. I mean, ultimately, we find that there are mixed reviews on what happened at Masada. And of course, the only historical record we have is from Josephus. Some archaeologists have used their findings to support Josephus, like Yigiel Yadin, and others have denied what he has written, just like Nachman ben Yehuda. Personally, I think the evidence and tradition, tradition is something that's really important because it's something that tends to be somewhat accurate in Judaism because these stories are passed down from generation to generation. So I think that evidence combined with tradition are evidence enough to prove that the Jews existed on top of Masada 
and that the Romans came, wanting to destroy them. So, the Jews committed mass suicide. There are a lot of details, and if you want to search out the matter more, check out some of the books or articles written on this topic, but we're going to leave it there for now. Know that I believe the story is concerning Masada. I'm on the side of Yigiel Yadin, but it's only fair. I have to be an impartial tour guide. It's only fair to point out that people have disagreed with his findings, uh, inciting that he was using archaeology to essentially spur people on to a political purpose. Like I said, always two sides to a story. Look at that! We made it down Snake Path in record time and with no tears. Distracting the brain with a story or thought-provoking discussion really is the best medicine, I tell you. I know it was a little terrifying as the path narrowed and there were no handrails, but you conquered it. Now to head back to our bus and get some water and relax after the hike. Just turn around and look how far we came. All the way from the tough Masada down to the bottom. And that's a historic path. Jews use that. Herod's people use that. So many people from, from years and years ago have used that path, and you too were on it. Well, look at you. That's pretty awesome. If, if that doesn't tell you, my fellow virtual voyager, about how awesome you are that you were able to conquer Snake Path, I don't know what will. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we remain in the area of the Dead Sea and head to En Gedi, the place where David hid from Saul in the wilderness, and also a place that inspired some of the Psalms. It's also a beautiful spot with amazing waterfalls and wildlife. I can't wait. See you next time on the Virtual Voyage.